Father, we come to you recognizing um, the power of your word, that um, your scriptures speak, uh, they're a treasure to, to us. And so we ask that you would, by your spirit, uh, make known to us this, this text, this passage of scripture, that we would be transformed. Just as the words you spoke at creation brought about uh, change, material things happened when you spoke we pray that you would speak again in the same way and bring about a recreation in our own hearts changing us into Christ's image we pray these things in Jesus name amen Cornelius Plantinga tells the story of a In the late 1980s, a love triangle in small-town Iowa. There were two beautiful, attractive women, ladies, Cindy and Sonia, that were sort of hometown rivals. Uh, They they competed in in beauty contests. Cindy won. uh, She was the, the county's Miss Harvest Queen. Sonia was the homecoming queen. But the real rivalry for these two ladies was Jim. Jim was this dashing, uh, hardworking, funny, just great guy. The kind of guy that any woman would would be interested in. And so Cindy began to date Jim, and they broke up. And following their breakup, Jim began dating, you guessed it, Sonia. Not only did they begin dating, but they actually became engaged uh, to, to, to marry. And this uh, created envy in Cindy. L- listen, to what, listen to what Plantinga says. When Cindy heard the news about Sonia and Jim getting married, she must have felt as if she had been stabbed, as if Jim and Sonia were trying to twist a knife between her ribs. Cindy wasn't used to dis- disappointment in romance. She had no idea where to find an antidote for it. It was bad enough to have lost Jim, but what really poisoned Cindy was the thought that her rival walked off with the prize, that her rival was pleased and satisfied, that her rival was filled with, with, uh, to the brim with bliss. So what did Cindy do? Envy begins to grab Cindy's heart. What did she do? This is what Plantinga says. Cindy rose up against Sonia and slew her. One autumn night in Iowa, Miss Harvest Queen strangled Miss Homecoming and left the whole community choking with grief. Now, this is, this is what envy can do, and this is what grabbed her heart. Envy. And, you know... Today, we don't, we don't talk about envy much, but it is devastating sin. In fact, when was the last time uh, when we confessed sins that you confessed to the sin of envy? And yet, in all of our hearts, we have, at some point, felt envy. Kids, have you ever been at school thinking about, man, I wish I could, wish I could get a worksheet done as fast as that kid over there? Or I wish I had that kid's, uh, you know, football skills on the playground. Or I could run as fast as that kid in tag or whatever. Wish I had their looks. That's envy. 
you, you start to feel jealous. And look, it starts from a young age, and it goes with us throughout our lives. We're always looking around, thinking, man, I wish I could have what they have. That's what envy is, and it's devastating. It is devastating. Creation is unraveling because of envy. Remember, Satan, he, he, didn't, he didn't want God to have the power. Not only did he want God's power, but he didn't want God to have it. And so he, he, he rebelled. Envy drove him. And of course, Adam and Eve, you remember, the fruit of the tree. They wanted to be like God. They weren't satisfying being God's blessed creation. They wanted what God had. What, what God had. They wanted the power of God. Envy drove Adam and Eve to, uh, to take the fruit and rebel. And the world has, has, has never been the same. Immediately following the fall, what's the first story we read about? Murder, Cain, killing, Abel. Why? Because Abel had the perfect sacrifice. It was pleasing to the Lord. And Cain just couldn't handle it. Envy rose up. Anger, hatred towards his brother. And he murdered him. Envy is a wrecking ball in our lives. It's a wrecking ball in creation. And it's our topic for this morning as we're going to see in this passage. Now, a little kind of lead up, because it's been a couple of weeks since we've been here uh, back in Genesis, and we're just, we're just moving our way for visitors. We're just moving our way straight through Genesis um, every week, and here we are in the life of Jacob. But a little background. Jacob, if you remember, was a trickster. When he was born, his name was Heel Grabber. He was a supplanter. He was the kind of guy that comes from behind and pulls a fast one on somebody. And he did that to his brother Esau, his older brother, the firstborn, Esau. And he stole the blessing from Esau. And Esau, as a result, wants to kill him. Again, we've got conflict in the leading to murder. Esau wants to kill him. So, so Jacob has, has, is on the run. And he flees to his family's home country, to the land of, of Laban, his uncle, to find a wife. And so he, he began to work and he... he, he is attracted to the beautiful Rachel, beautiful in form and appearance, and he works seven years for Rachel. The only thing is, Laban never actually said that he would give Jacob Rachel at the end of those seven years. So what does Laban do? They create a wedding feast, uh, the, 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 um, the, the drinks are flowing, Night is descending. Leah, the, the, the married one, Rachel, is veiled. And Jacob takes her into his tent to be his wife. And the next morning, surprise, it's not Rachel. It's Rachel's, I'll, I'll, let's just face it, it's Rachel's ugly sister, Leah. The, not the attractive one. The one that Laban was, you know, pondered as, well, how am I going to marry this one off? Oh, I got an idea. I can trick somebody into marrying her. And that's exactly what he does. And so Jacob storms out of his tent the next morning, goes to Laban's uh, door and says, what, what are you doing? I worked seven years for Rachel, not for Leah. Remember what Laban says? Oh, Jacob, buddy, you're not from around here. Let me tell you a little bit about how we do things in my country. In my country... We marry the firstborn first, right? In my country, the firstborn 
they, they're entitled to certain blessings, like marriage. I don't know if that's how things work back in your country, but in my country, the firstborn gets married first. You see, Laban's just digging a knife into his heart, uh, Jacob's heart. And Jacob, head hung low, walks back to the fields and works another seven years, double time, to get the love of his life, Rachel. So now they're together. Well, he's still working out that obligation. In this passage that we just read, Jacob's still working in the fields. He's raising a family. Uh, and as you can imagine, it's just, they're just, Rachel and Leah and Jacob and their two servants, it's just one big happy family, right? No. Imagine the Cindy and Sonia story, but Jim marries both of them, and they're together in the same house. That's, that's what we got here. But still, it's a mess. But still, God is at work. Even in this mess, he's bringing forth his salvation purposes. They're moving forward through this family that's a mess. And in this process, we're going we're gonna to consider and reflect upon this topic of envy. Four things. Um, we're going to consider the cause of envy. Envy itself, so that's the second thing, envy, and then the effects of envy in our lives, and then finally, the end of envy. So those are the three headings. The cause of envy, envy itself, the effects of envy in our lives, and the end of envy. All envy begins with a cause, and we see what that cause is in in chapter 29, verse 31. Look at it. Uh, It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And you read on and you you realize that Leah gives birth to four sons, like just boom, 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 right off the bat. She's delivering babies and she's delivering boys. She's got this huge little brood of boys in the making. And this in the ancient Near East, this is I mean, this is, this is what, a, what, a, what a wife would provide. Boy, this would strengthen the tribe. Jacob's got a little military force in the making. He's got a, a workforce in the making. He's got his retirement plan just gets stronger and stronger with every boy that comes into the, into the world through Leah. And that leads... So that's the cause, the boys, and that, that leads to envy. And look at, So look at ver, chapter 30, verse 1. It says, when Rachel saw that she bore no, Jacob no children, she envied her sister Leah. The first thing I want to say about envy is that we are always tempted to envy those who are near us. Okay, near us. Rachel is not envying the, uh, the fertile wife two tribes down. She's envying the fertile person in her tent, Leah, her sister, right? And, and Cindy and Sonia, remember both of them? They're not envying, like, this is late 1980s, Kim Basinger or Christy Brinkley. They're envying one another. They may covet those others and what they have, but their envy lands on the people that are in proximity near them. And not just physical proximity, but near them uh, in blessing, 
right? Blessing proximity. We envy those that are near us when it comes to blessing. Listen to what uh, Cornelius Plantinga says. The, the good that an envier resents is usually one that is just slightly superior to his own. In the classic pattern, the prosperous, not the poor, the prosperous resent the rich. The three minute and 58 second miler resents the three minute and 54 second miler. The pretty resent the beautiful. The hardworking B plus student resents the straight A student, especially the happy-go-lucky one that never seems to study. See how envy works? You envy those that are near you both in space, like kind of physically in your community, in your neighborhood, in your work sphere, and, and also those that are near you in talent, beauty, circumstances, objectives in life. Like if you have a PR firm in town, you don't, you don't, you don't really care about what's going on in the successful PR firm in New York City. You care about what's happening in the local PR firm. You get upset when you see them get the local front page spread in the local newspaper that highlights their work. That's, that's where envy comes into play. The high school basketball player doesn't envy LeBron James. He envies his teammate, who's just a little bit better, and starting to get uh, college interest in his play. Now, th- let's think about Leah and Rachel for a moment. What's the proper response for Rachel to Leah and, and, and the blessings, the blessings that, she's, that she has? These, are ble- these children are blessings of God. How should Rachel respond? It would go something like this. Praise be to God. My sister Leah, she, let's face it, she's had kind of a, she's been dealt sort of a poor hand. And, and, and she'd won no beauty contest, and she was never daddy's little girl. But now she's kind of, she's found her niche. Her niche is, is delivering babies. Like she's having all these kids. Praise God for her success. But that's not what she's doing. She's envying her sister. And, and, and here's another important distinction to make. She doesn't just want what her sister has, babies. That's coveting, and that's a problem, to, to have, want what others have. The high school basketball player covets LeBron James's gifts, but he doesn't envy LeBron James. She, she want, Rachel doesn't just covet what her sister has. She envies her sister, and as a result, she... She wants the children, and she doesn't want Leah to have them. She wants, Leah, that, she wants Leah to be barren. Again, Plantinga. We covet what another has. When we envy, we want what another has, and we don't want them to have it. And you see how envy is an offshoot of pride. In fact, it's kind of hard to see where pride ends and envy begins. The two are very much related and connected. But what envy does is it puts us in an adversarial relationship with those around us. It puts us at odds with those around us. And, of course, our call um, is to, to love one another. Envy stems from hate, and if left unchecked, it will, eventually lead, it will eventually lead to murder. And there's plenty of Cindy and Sonia, Exhibit A. Cain and Abel, there's another example. Eventually, if left unchecked, it will lead to, 
to murder. Now, mercifully, it doesn't always lead there. In fact, maybe more often than not, it doesn't lead there, and that's, that's good. But it does bring plenty of damage into the lives. And so now we're going to consider the effects of envy, our third consideration. And let's look, let's look first at the effects of envy in Rachel's life. Look at chapter 30, verse 1. It says, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. And what does she say to Jacob? Give me children or I shall die. Whew, that's strong. She's miserable. She, she, wants, she wants to die. Okay, that's, that's a pretty low point for a person. Give me children or I die. Now, never mind that Rachel's Mrs. Ancient Near East. She's always been daddy's little princess. That when she walks by, all the men of the city just kind of, they, they just are enthralled by her. Never mind all of that. She fixates on the one thing she doesn't have. Children, I want that. And, and, not, and if I don't get that one thing, my life is not worth the living. Kill me, God. I'm miserable. I'm depressed. I have no purpose in this world. And, the net, and this is the net effect of, of envy. It makes us miserable. Catholic um, philosopher and, and theologian Peter Kreeft says, envy, even though it's not the greatest sin, is the only one that gives the sinner no pleasure at all. Not even fake or temporary pleasure. You know, most, most sins at least give like a fleeting little dash of delight. You know, gluttony. You know, just stuffing pies down all day long. That, it tastes good. Sexual sin brings delight. Drunkenness numbs our, our lives and brings some, you know, balm to our life. Envy doesn't do any of that. It just makes us miserable, like on the spot. And in that way, it's, it's actually um, an insight. It's just, it's, it's raw sin. There's no facade of, of, of delight. It's just raw. But here's the thing. Okay, so that's, that's what envy does to the envier. But it doesn't just affect the person that's, that's envying. It also infects the envied. In this instance, Leah. Listen to what Plantinga says about this. He, he says, to be envied, if, you, if you've been envied in your life, you have something venomous aimed at you for which it's surprisingly hard to find the right anti-venom. Think about it. Like, if you do well, you're going to be resented all the more. If you ignore the envier, you nick his pride. If you try to be nice to the envier, you may be thought patronizing. Even a whiff of pity in your attitude is natural gas to the fires of envy. There's really no way to respond to it other than breakdown. Now, that's if you don't like to be envied, okay? And that's a good thing, not to want to be envied. But some of us kind of like being envied. And that means that we are probably more prone to envy ourselves. This is, again, Plantinga. Enviers want to be envied. And I think, as this text reveals, Leah has taken a bit of delight in the fact that all of a sudden, she's got something that Rachel wants for the first time in her life. 
Look at verses 9 through 13. So Leah has stopped having children, and, uh, and, and, and so she has her servant Zilpah begin to bear children on, on her behalf, to have more children for her. And this happened with Sarah and Hagar. Let me say one quick note. Let's just step back from this for a moment and say, all of these wives and servants and all, all this is, none of this, it, it, you could read this and think, oh, the Bible supports polygamy. Oh, no, it doesn't. I mean, this is a total, this is a total mess. Um, simply because the Bible is describing something that's taking place, it doesn't mean that it's prescribing it. And we know from creation that the intent was for one man and one woman to be united in covenant together to bear children. Polygamy was a sin. It was introduced in chapter 4 by this chest-beating uh, tyrant, and, and, and then it sort of lasted well into the biblical times. So, envy's a problem. But one of Leah's servants, Zilpah, begins having children on Leah's behalf. And with everyone, uh, Z- uh, Leah is, is excited because we, we've got these great things happening. But look at verse 12. She, 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 Zilpah, her servant, uh, has two children. And then verse 12, it says, Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I. Why is she happy? Because other women call me happy. Happy am I because other women call me happy? I'm happy because you guys are all just envying me. En- enviers like to be envied. And Leah has the same thing in her heart. Happy am I, for women have called me happy. Actually, really, there's just one woman that I care about that's calling me happy. My sister, little Miss Pris, little Miss Perfect, all of a sudden calls me happy. So that makes me happy. Craved, Peter Craved again says, envy causes us to weep when others rejoice and to rejoice when others weep. Remember the call, what Paul tells us to do in Romans chapter 12? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Envy causes us to do the opposite. When others are weeping, we're rejoicing. Yay, they're, they're, they're suffering. When they're rejoicing, we're weeping. We rejoice when others weep. Leah is happy because Rachel is weeping. Because Rachel looks at Leah and says, she's happy, I want what she has. If you watch, you know, OU fans, when there's a Texas kid, it doesn't even have to be OU playing Texas. It's just another, they're playing another team. And they pan the crowd and Texas is losing and all the fans are just, oh, melting and, you know, oh. And they're, they're weeping. And what are, what are the OU fans doing? Yeah, <laughs> they're rejoicing. Or conversely, if Texas is winning, then it's like, oh, we're weeping. This is, this is envy. This is what envy does. Or here's another strategy for dealing with envy. We dismiss the thing we want. Henry Fairley says this, what we are unable to achieve, we will bring low. You know, the team that gets beat, the college team that gets beat up all the time. Well, I think, I think the NCAA just gives too much attention to athletics. 
Um, you know, we really need to get back to the academics and, you know, you, you dismiss, right, the success of another. Rachel's probably, probably at some point in all of this is thinking, you know, having babies is a little overrated. I've, I'm, I'm keeping my form. I'm uh, getting my eight hours every night while Lee is nursing all these babies. It's, it's overrated. We dismiss that which we can't achieve. And here's, but the charge of love, again, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And what envy does is it puts us in a painfully awkward relationship with one another at best. But it makes us miserable more typically. And that's what we see here. There's misery all around this household. And I think we see it most uh, poignantly in this bizarre Mandrake episode, which we'll just turn our attention to now. Look at verses 14 through 18. It says, In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben, one of Leah's sons, went and found mandrakes in the field, and he brought them to his mother, Leah. So little, little Reuben finds these mandrakes, and he goes and brings them to uh, Leah, his mother. Now, what are mandrakes? Well, uh, they're, they're like this Mediterranean plant. They actually look like a huge, like, sort of like a naked body, <laughs> if you look at them. They're kind of a weird little plant, and probably for that reason, they uh, became, um, they're like an aphrodisiac. You, you, Aphrodite is the Greek, is the goddess of love and desire. And do you know what she was also called? Lady of the Mandrake. And because they were, it was believed that they would excite a person, they also were believed to help provide fertility, to, to help uh, in, assist in the, in, the, in the conception of children, these mandrakes. And little Reuben's probably just picking up a plant and just be like, here you go. And, just, oh. and so she takes the mandrakes and look at, oh, and Baron Rachel sees an opportunity. Look, verse 14. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. That's what I, that, that's what I need. I need mandrakes. I've not had any babies, and I'm getting tired. I'm getting really desperate. I need some mandrakes. And Leah's response, she said, verse 15, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you also take away my son's mandrakes? Come on, Rachel. Like, you won every beauty contest. Your daddy's a little princess, and now you want my mandrakes. You got my husband, too. And then verse 15 Okay, now this is where it gets even more bizarre. Rachel said, okay, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. And what com- we don't know exactly what's going on, but commentators say that because Rachel is Jacob's first love, she sort of had priority in the home. She was the one who directed all the other servants and wives, even their evening activities. And so she has control over, over this. And so... So they, they exchange. They, uh, Leah gives Rachel the mandrakes. And then look at uh, verse 16. Oh, and by the way, one of the reasons why it's believed that Leah's not having any children anymore is not because she's grown barren, but because she's not having relations with Jacob. So look at verse 16. So Leah, Leah gives the mandrakes to Rachel. And then Jacob came in from the field, 
in the evening, Leah went to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And the, the, the phrase lay with her is, is used only in, in reference to illicit relations, forced relations, Lot's daughters laying with him, same term. Potiphar's wife trying to uh, exploit Joseph, same term. The rape of Dinah, same term. Do you see the dysfunction and the misery in this home? Do you, like, this is not, polygamy is not pictured well here as it is throughout the, the scriptures. You see how envy has ripped through Jacob's tent like a virus, spreading and infecting everyone? So, I mean, ask yourself this question. Who's happy here? Who's happy in this story? Is anyone happy? Is beautiful Rachel happy? No. She's not happy because she doesn't have any children. You think, well, maybe that means Leah's happy because Leah's having all the children, right? Wrong. Leah's not happy at all. Look, look, look again at the beginning of the passage, chapter 29, verses 32 and following. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Finally, I'll get what I want, my husband's love. And then Leah conceives again, bore a son, because the Lord has heard that I'm hated. He's given me the son also, so she called his name Simeon. Maybe now. Maybe now the Lord, maybe now my husband will love me. And again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me finally because I've borne him three, cho- three sons. But no. Leah has what Rachel wants, children. Rachel has what Leah wants, Jacob's love. And what about Jacob? You know what Jacob wants? What does Jacob want above everything? Rachel's love. Does he have it? I don't think so. Look at chapter 30, verse 1. What does she say? Jacob, give me children or I die. She doesn't say, sweet baby Jacob, I would love to have children. But as long as I have you, I have, I have purpose. Jacob... You bring nothing to my life. I want children. And if I don't get them, my life is not worth living. And notice how Jacob just sort of recedes into the background in this whole story, in this whole passage. Remember Abraham in the midst of his wife's barrenness? Remember what Abraham did? Trusted the Lord. Remember Isaac when his uh, Rebecca was barren? Do you remember? Before she had the twins, what did he do? He prayed, chapter 25, verse 14. Trusting the Lord, praying. Jacob's not doing any of those things. He's withdrawn. She says, Give me children or I die. And what, what does he do? Yells from the living room recliner. Am I God? Like, that I can make this happen? And by the way, last time I checked, I don't think this is my problem. We've got little babies crying all over the place around here. 
And, you know, what, what you want to say to Jacob is, well, Jacob, no, you're not in the place of God, but God is for you. God has called you. His blessing is upon you. Pray to him. Lead your, lead your family in this moment. But instead, he's doing what it's been tempting for men to do since the fall, and that is to sit back passively and watch life happen. Listen to what Waltke says about Jacob. Jacob is potent in physical strength, remember? Pushing the rock aside, flexing his muscles. He's potent in physical strength, both to work hard and sire a family. But spiritually, Jacob is impotent. He stumbles into a providential marriage with neither prayer nor praise, unlike the faithful servant we saw two weeks ago. He's duped by Laban into the marriage contract and is the toast of Laban's jest at his own marriage. And as his wife struggle for God's blessing and children to validate their marriage, Jacob is reduced to a stud in the, in the equine sense. And it's safe to say, envy has ripped this family apart. They are bartering for their husband. As Kreeft says, as Kreeft says, the envy doesn't bring even a whiff of satisfaction, just disappointment. And it tears communities apart. We see it in Jacob's household, which is a mess. And by the way, uh, the mess will continue into the next generation. Remember who Jacob's most beloved wife, who she bore at the end of this passage? Joseph. Remember who all of Leah's sons can't stand? Joseph. You wonder why? You see the dynamics? The, this kind of the subterranean context out of which they're growing up? It's going to lead to all sorts of problems. And as we'll see, though, God is working through this family. But we can, we can be a mess too. And envy can rip through our own. It, it can rip through this church community right here. And like all sin, it has a way of distorting reality. You know, you may be here in this church and looking kind of across the way. Maybe you're new. You haven't been here for a month. You're not as settled in. You're new. It's a couple weeks. And, you know, you look across the way. You see two families conversing. They're laughing. They're carrying on. You're like, man, I wish I had that kind of close community with those people over there. And you know what they're thinking? The couples that are talking on the other side of the Sanctuary. Husband's thinking, what is her name? The wife's name? I can't, I don't remember. You know, in other words, we project our longings for community outward and assume that they're fulfilled in everyone else. And they're usually not. Leah's miserable. She's not happy, even though she has kids. Rachel's miserable. She's not happy, even though she has Jacob's love, or the love of Jacob, what Leah wants. Jacob's not happy. Nobody's happy in this, in this situation. Envy is fueled by hate. And, and, and I should say this too, uh, a lack of um, gratitude. It's, it's fueled by self-pity. Self-pity is at the center of envy. Gratitude's at the center of, of love. So how do we, as a, as a congregation and as individuals, how do we end envy? What do we do? That's the, that's the question that matters, right? How do we not 
get in this mess that we just read about. Avoiding that. Well, we love one another. And we do that as we root ourselves in the love of God in Christ. We love because he first loved us. Remember, envy looks at another person, it sees what's attractive, what's desirable in others, and it wants to take it from them and take it for themselves. Like, I want her looks, and I don't want her to have it. I want his humor, and I don't want him to have it. I want her husband, and I don't want her to have it. I want their children. I want his brains. I want her hospitality. It looks at all these things, and other, other people that are attractive, that are desirable, and says, I want those things. Remember what our Lord did? He took everything that was unattractive, undesirable, unwanted in us. He took our sin, and he put it upon himself. And he marched his way to the cross, and he bore our sin so that we could get all of his blessings, all, the, all that he has to give to us. He gives in Christ. That's the transaction. That's the trade. We get his glory, his beauty, his perfection, his kingdom, his obedience. And this is what love does. It's what Christ, it's what Christ did. Our hearts are filled with envy, but by rooting ourselves in the love of Christ, we're made able to love. And Jesus, remember, he doesn't hoard his gifts, but he gives them out lavishly. And we're called to do, to do the same, to love others for the good of one another. To, as Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. When you love one another, that, that becomes natural to do. And that's what we're called to. Let's pray. Our Father, this scene cries for a Savior. Not unlike our own lives. Every week we, we pass the peace of Christ because he is our foundation for peace with one another. Apart from Christ, we're entangled by envy, by pride, by anger, by hatred. And we do really good... We're really good at floating along with a veneer of kindness without any substance, without any love. So we ask that you would give us Jesus who loved, who took what we did not want and put it on himself so that we could get what we do want, his glory. This is love. Help us to love others, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.